Uh, welcome to Are Science and Medicine Threatened by Borders? My name is Sandy Starr and I work for the Progress Educational Trust, which is a charity that seeks to improve choices for people affected by genetic conditions and infertility. Uh, this debate is very kindly sponsored by the biotech company uh, Immunocore, which is also one of the festival's battle champions, as you can see uh, on the banner there uh, on the right. On the 30th of March 2019, uh, the UK is due to cease being a member of the European Union after 26 years, or 46 years, uh, if you count the EU's precursor institution. Less than two months later, on the 20th of May uh, 2019, the International Committee for Weights and Measures uh, is due to bring into force new definitions of several of the seven basic units of measurement on which all units of measurement in science are based. The latest step in a global project of metrication, which began in the tumult of the French Revolution uh, 220 years ago, when it was first proposed that the metre be defined as one ten millionth of the distance across the surface of the Earth from the North Pole to the equator, making it possible to study the natural world objectively in universally understood terms. Now, I've mentioned those two different dates and what's happening on them to illustrate that uh, politics and science, although they're related, although they impinge on each other, they can often play out on very different scales of time and space, be driven by very different factors and fulfill very different needs. But political arrangements do impinge uh, on science and on medicine, for better and for worse. National borders uh, and policies governing them restrict the way people move across borders, uh, the way funds move across borders, the way regulation applies across borders. And in this debate, we're going to be asking, in light of that, are science and medicine threatened by borders? And to help us answer this question, uh, we have a very distinguished panel of speakers whom I'll introduce briefly in the order in which they're going to speak. First, on my far right, uh, we have Rafael Yanez Munoz, who is Professor of Advanced Therapy at Royal Holloway University of London, a trustee at the charity Genetic Alliance UK, editor-in-chief of the journal Gene Therapy, and has just written a not very happy open letter to the Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson uh, after Boris uh, said that gene therapy was an area that might benefit particularly in, in the wake of Brexit. Uh, Raphael had a different view. Uh, he will be followed in a slight change to the speaker lineup in your festival brochure uh, by Dr. Fiona McEwen on my immediate right, uh, who is a researcher in biological and experimental psychology at Queen Mary University of London. Uh, the current focus of her research is resilience and mental health in Syrian refugee children, but she has experience in various uh, other fields, including veterinary medicine. Uh, then, um, on my immediate left, we have Dr. Elliot Forster. He's the chief executive of this debate's sponsor, Immunocore, chair of the MedCity project. Uh, and you may have seen him earlier this afternoon speaking at the debate, Can Biotech Lead an Economic Revolution? And Brexit um, and related issues already came up there. So we will be interested to hear you develop your thoughts during, during this discussion. <laughs> And then finally, on my far left, we have Dr. Joe Kaplinski, who's an assistant professor in the Department of Micro and Nanotechnology at the Technical University of Denmark. Uh, his work has spanned 
theoretical and experimental physics, molecular and chemical biology, the immune system, the treatment of cancer, and he's been based at various times in the UK, the USA, and Denmark. Each of them is going to speak for five minutes in the first instance. I've whizzed through their descriptions, but find out about their many accomplishments on the Battle of Ideas website. Um, but without any further ado, I'll stop there and I'll ask Raphael to tell us, are science and medicine threatened by borders? Thank you, Sandy. Um, good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for being here. Um, just by way of introduction, I am a professional scientist. I work for Royal Holloway, which is a college of the University of London, in the area of advanced therapies. And those are gene and cell therapies. So basically, we try to use genetic information as a medicine, as well as use stem cells, perhaps to deliver that medicine. I obviously have a relatively biased view in this debate. I'm a Spanish national. I've been here for 22 years, but I'm still a Spanish passport holder. And I am a scientist, and overall the scientific community is very biased in this debate. So I think it's important to tell you both of those issues up front. In democratic societies, we uh, entrust our governments with either making decisions for us or implementing decisions that we make. And those decisions can be potentially very important. So lately I've been trying to, to frame in my mind the discussion of how important is Brexit. Uh, again, in my mind, probably the most important decision that a government can make is to take the country to war, because at war people are going to die. And they're going to die because of decisions that you take or decisions that you make. But Brexit is something that is going to affect all our lives. It's already affecting all our lives. If you think of the standards of the air we breathe, the standards of the care that we receive in NHS hospitals, the price of all the products that we buy, the planes in which we fly and go everywhere, all those are aspects of our daily lives that are already being affected by Brexit and are going to be affected by Brexit in the future. So this is very important because people die depending on the standard of the air that you breathe. When you have problems with your breathing, when you are heavily asthmatic or you have a specific rare disease, a, a reduction in the quality of the air you breathe can mean that actually you die and many other aspects, the quality of the care that you receive when you go to hospital can determine whether you live, whether you live or you die. So these are very important decisions. So Brexit is right up there in my mind with pretty much the most important decisions that a government can implement. As I said, I'm a scientist and for science and medicine, Brexit has very important implications because for us we need funds science is very expensive we are constantly competing for research funds and a very significant part of our funds comes from the european union through various schemes to give you a rough idea of the total funding that my lab has received over the years at royal holloway around 50 percent half of it has come from the european union that's a lot of money 
We also rely on personnel. We, I don't work in the lab anymore. I stopped working in the lab a few years. Effectively, I'm a manager now. I'm a research manager of my lab and other aspects outside the lab. We need people to carry out that research. What we call mobility of scientists is critical for us. Again, the European Union has specific programs to promote mobility, but that mobility relies on open borders. When I came over from Spain 22 years ago, all I had to do was to pack my bags and come over. And that in the future may just not be possible. In the near future, may not be possible. Additionally, the EU provides access to resources, expertise, and many other uh, factors that are really important for carrying out research effectively. In terms of actually taking medicines to market to be able to benefit people, to be part of an important market is a very important issue For many, in many respects because, well, in a simple way, you can think that once you have something that can be applicable in the clinic, that your job is done. Actually, it's only the beginning of it. Products have to be marketed. The UK is about 3% of the global pharmaceutical market, and companies, manufacturers, will not be in a hurry to market products in the UK. It's costly to them. If we are outside of the EU, which are much bigger market, they will go for the US, the EU, China, and in a very low priority, eventually they may come to the UK. Some of them may actually decide not to market their medicines in the UK. It's not worth their while. So just rounding up, belonging to the EU very much impacts on everything we do on our daily lives. And in science and research, it has very important implications. And at the moment, those are not being solved. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Fiona. Thank you. Um, so um, at the moment, I'm working in research with Syrian refugees, and that's in, in Lebanon, and that's part of a very big sort of international collaboration. Um, I want to talk about some slightly different stuff at the moment. Um, so the, the title is about um, borders impact on science and medicine. So I thought I'll cover a little bit of the medicine side as well. So um, I, and I particularly want to talk about the veterinary profession, which I, I used to be part of. Um, so about half of new vets who register with the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons every year are from overseas, and the majority of them are from the EU. Um, so clearly, if there are you know, restrictions on um, immigration or we end the mutual recognition of professional standards or uh, qualifications um, that currently occurs, it will cause a, a labour shortage. Um, the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons have I've done some really interesting work in this, and I wanted to talk about this because I think it's a really good example of um, a situation which is probably happening across lots of professions and sectors at the moment, where they're recognising the, the problems that will occur, the challenges, but then thinking, how do we tackle those and how do we use that opportunity to actually you know, improve the profession, to, to you know, push things forward um, more rapidly than it might happen otherwise? So, for example, um, they talked about the fact that we need to boost... Um, the numbers of veterinary graduates in the UK, there's very few vet schools, it's a very oversubscribed course, um, so this may be the chance to start thinking more seriously about it, expansion of that sector. Um, it's a chance to rethink the role of paraprofessionals like nurses. So this has been on the agenda for some time, the fact that we should be upskilling nurses who you know, are often capable of a lot more than they're allowed to do. Um, so to making it possible for them uh, to, you know, to, to, do, you know, to engage a lot, a lot uh, you know, greater range of tasks and use their skills more productively. 
Um, it, they also said we really need to look at retention rates in the veterinary profession. So for some time now, there's been a, a sort of ongoing discussion about the fact that stress levels are very high, you know, dropout is high, is high levels of burnout, um, has the highest suicide rate of all the professions. So this is, you know, it's clearly been discussed as a problem for a while. Um, but now, you know, the, the threat of you know, Brexit is you know, really sort of sharpens the mind on this because it's not, it's clearly not OK to say, well, we know this is a problem, but even if, you know, this you know, high rate of dropout, there are vets coming from overseas that fill those positions. It pushes the profession to actually really take that more seriously and think about what we should be doing about it. Um, and in the longer term, saying it may be time to rethink um, the way that we, we deal with sort of mutual recognition of qualifications. So at the moment in the EU, we mutually recognise um, professional qualifications like veterinary medicine. Um, vets coming from outside the EU, we only do that if they're part of a, an international um, you know, sort of, you know, accreditation scheme. Um, and the way that works is that you have members of the profession in both countries who will visit each other's vet schools, they look at each other's education programmes and qualifications, they map across to see how equivalent they are so that you can really tell um, if someone coming from this particular country, from this particular vet school, has qualifications that are, are equivalent to ours. Um, now, that doesn't happen in the same way in the EU. It's really by virtue of being in a political union that we recognise qualifications. So what the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons are saying is this is the opportunity to step back and say, actually, we need to be thinking more seriously about um, looking at uh, you know, the vet schools that are within those accreditation, accreditation schemes rather than outside of that. Um, and I think in a sort of more a broader point in that, the mutual recognition schemes work best when they're driven by members of the profession, not by politicians. So it needs to be the members of the profession getting together and driving that forward. Um, and that happens despite the borders. So the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons are working with India at the moment, for example, on that. Um, a different organisation, Institute of Animal Technology, um, have a very strong, long-standing relationship with South Africa in this respect, um, whereas the progress within Europe has been much slower. So it doesn't depend, you know, the political borders don't necessarily map on to where the professions are, are good at working together. Um, and, and, you know, what they're, what they're arguing is that this should be the opportunity to think about driving up standards in the UK um, and at the same time encouraging greater, you know, sort of, you know, more working with other countries to, to think about trying to drive up those standards internationally as well, especially in, in sort of low and middle income countries. Um, so the other one, other thing I wanted to mention quickly is that, you know, for a long time we've recognised that non-EU students, you know, like PhD students, have real problems with visas. So it's not uncommon for students from, say, China to have to disrupt their PhD halfway through. Um, to They have to reapply for visas from their own country. So we have students who have to pay for the expense of flights back. They can't book the return flight because they don't know if their visa is going to be renewed. They have the cost of visas and such like. And this is obviously extraordinarily disruptive and completely irrational. You know, these are these are people that we, we want coming here. Um, but there's not been very much discussion around this. And it's only really now that this might apply to EU students as well, that actually people are starting to talk more seriously about it. And again, in terms of thinking about the opportunities that this poses, that Brexit might pose, there should be the chance that we sharpen our minds on this and think, actually, should we be making a bit more noise about this, demanding that the government take this seriously and, you know, and, and sort out the system, make it easier for all students, not just those in the EU, but, but globally. Um, so broadly, just to, to sum up, if I'm out of time, um, to, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, clearly Brexit will pose challenges across science and medicine. Um, but what we need to do is think about, you know, how we tackle those challenges, but how we use that as an opportunity to try and, you know, make the progress that we should be making anyway. Thank you very much. Elliot, what's your perspective? 
Yeah, thanks very much. Um, well, first of all, uh, very grateful to have the opportunity uh, to uh, join in the, this debate. Um, as you will all know, uh, the scientific community, uh, both in terms of the academic researcher, uh, biotech, pharmaceutical tech, were largely um, pro-Remain uh, as part of uh, the transition uh, into which we ultimately emerged as uh, Brexit. Um, and it is uh, self-evident that uh, many of the advantages um, that uh, were manifest as being part of uh, the European Union uh, are at risk as we transition uh, through uh, the next uh, 18 months or so uh, and eventually leave the European Union. Um, in, in, in simple terms, I, I guess we should consider three categories. Uh, the first uh, is, is people, uh, and I think we've already touched upon uh, the movement of researchers um, and the impact that may have. So my company has about 450 uh, lab-based researchers uh, just south of Oxford. 30% uh, uh, of those are European nationals who, um, rather like Raphael, um, live here uh, on the basis of being uh, under the free movement of people, a uh, pillar uh, of membership of the European Union. And clearly they are um, destabilized at the moment while we're in this uh, transition period. So from a single company perspective, there is a great risk uh, to continuity simply because of the uh, uncertainty that's there. Um, it's also true, however, um, that uh, those people who run uh, companies, um, in particular the entrepreneurs, uh, also like uh, to be able to move um, around uh, and uh, technologies arise uh, in all sorts of different places. Uh, and, and again, that ease of movement without having to think about uh, moving uh, is a great benefit. And of course, finally, from the people perspective, uh, as we're talking about medicine, we shouldn't forget the movement of patients. And we're, we're a bit schizophrenic as a nation on this because we like the idea of being able to move uh, from health service to health service. Not many people do, by the way, um, but there is that freedom uh, available. We, we can get uh, European passports, in essence, for health. Um, and if you've ever uh, fallen over uh, on a ski resort or, or fallen off a um, chair somewhere in, uh, on holiday, uh, then you can easily go to the local hospital and have uh, all of that uh, paid for um, under this passporting system. The, the kind of schism comes, and you heard some of the legislation uh, this week when we hear about kind of medical tourism, uh, which is, of course, now being asked to be uh, monitored uh, within, uh, in particular, A&E units um, at uh, the NHS hospitals. Um, the other benefit we have, of course, um, is that of technology. Uh, so many of the technologies that uh, are shared within universities, many of the technologies that are developed within biotech and pharmaceuticals uh, don't have a single national origin. They are shared um, in particular through uh, European uh, relationships, so there are lots and lots of very good frameworks, uh, FP7, uh, IMI, uh, 2020, just to name three, uh, and a number of other uh, collaborations, out of which, by the way, uh, the UK uh, is a net beneficiary. But it's also true that those technologies uh, spread uh, more globally than that. A lot of US uh, and, I guess, Swiss uh, technologies uh, fit uh, into the same um, uh, piece uh, of uh, movement uh, of ideas. Um, of course, the movement of medicines is particularly important. And I think we should remember medicines uh, moving in two types. Uh, one is when medicines are just being developed, so they uh, don't yet have a license for use. Uh, but they are developed on an international basis. There is 
uh, no distinction, frankly, between uh, a medicine that's developed in France versus one that is developed in Belgium versus one that's developed in the UK. Uh, and then ultimately, uh, when those medicines get a license, uh, how they move around. Right now, there is a single license for the whole uh, of the European Union. Any uh, UK-based uh, technology company who needs a license from the European Medicines Agency, for example, uh, will now need to establish a European headquarters post-March 19 in order to maintain uh, that pan-national uh, license, just adding uh, to the burden. Uh, the final element that, of course, uh, we've benefited from um, is the movement of money. Um, it is uh, true uh, that um, money uh, is available in the UK from the UK government, from UK investors, but the best money uh, is that which is just of multiple national origins. We shouldn't exclude the US from this, but again, many investors, uh, many uh, collaborations are pan-European. So for all of those reasons, uh, it became evident that uh, the industry um, that I represent, uh, in this room um, at least, um, would be supportive of remaining uh, in the European Union. But let me just offer very briefly a couple of counter-bids uh, to that same argument. In uh, 2005, uh, the UK was the number one place to do first-in-human uh, clinical trials. Uh, it, was, it was the most uh, uh, frequently uh, uh, used country for, for the legislation to support that, and therefore the number of trials has gone. The imposition of the European Clinical Trials Directive squashed that flat. In fact, what it did is it brought everyone up to the same level of bureaucracy, uh, meaning that the UK lost its advantage. The UK also leads the world in some of the areas uh, from a regulatory perspective uh, that uh, Raphael uh, also uh, operates in. And, and that advantage has actually caused a reversal of some of the brain drain that we saw in uh, the 1980s, in particular with uh, US researchers uh, moving uh, here. And one point about that is that uh, particularly uh, senior level researchers, uh, professors, uh, people who are senior in the industry are pretty international. And um, so borders don't make much difference to them. Uh, as we saw in the 1980s, a lot of UK um, uh, uh, researchers moving to the US and subsequently over the last 10 years moving in the other direction. So I think whilst uh, we as an uh, industry are um, not for Brexit, we must also recognise that they're not just the black and white situation that is often portrayed. Thank you, Elliot. And finally, Joe. Uh, okay, thank you. Um, so I'm a, a great fan of uh, Europe and a great fan of open borders. Uh, I'm not such a great fan of the EU as an institution uh, and as a specific set of institutions and bureaucracies, and I think that's one important distinction to uh, keep in mind. Uh, and I think as we're going forward uh, with Brexit, and I think in the blurb it was also highlighted, the trend in the US with, with Trump towards kind of closing down uh, uh, kind of borders and, and international cooperation. Um, it's perhaps worth reflecting on uh, uh, the uh, the kind of tension between, as all the speakers have, have mentioned, the uh, kind of openness or has been um, uh, characterized elsewhere in the, the festival, the kind of the anywheres versus the somewheres. The scientists are, are very much the anywheres. Uh, you know, where, where is this tension coming from between the scientists and, uh, you know, many other communities that, that, that have a, a, a much more kind of somewhere character? Because if we want to really make a a case for openness and build some, some good 
uh, international cooperation, we should, we should kind of try to think about these things. Uh, so uh, in that spirit, I can um, uh, uh, start with um, uh, one anecdote about uh, working in uh, Denmark uh, and just speaking about uh, language. So the Danes speak superb uh, uh, English. Um, you know, almost almost as good as the the native English over here, uh, and they're very accommodating when when I'm over there. They're happy to speak in the university uh, uh, in English. Um, when you speak to them, on the other hand, many of them uh, will say that they are happy to speak English because they recognise they're a small country. They don't expect the rest of the world to speak English. Uh, that doesn't mean that they're any less proud of the Danish language, uh, and they very much appreciate it if you try to make uh, an effort, which unfortunately I, uh, I'm still working on my Danish, but uh, uh, you know, they, they appreciate the, the effort that you can make. Uh, and it becomes even clearer when you look outside the university where, uh, where you see attention, uh, which is that within the university, there is a move to start teaching more and more in English. Uh, within wider Danish society, uh, you know, that's not such a, a popular uh, proposition. Uh, and you find that it's almost promoted by the academics, almost by stealth, that they don't really want to discuss this with wider Danish society, right? That we want to move towards uh, teaching uh, even undergraduate courses in English. Uh, and this is, as might be expected, a particular tension around uh, medical education uh, and people in uh, medical schools where, uh, you know, many Danes would very much prefer that their doctors were educated uh, in Danish rather than English. Uh, so I think we can, uh, you know, what, what we can begin to, to see if we draw this out is that, you know, across Europe we still have uh, a number of uh, uh, distinct national cultures. Uh, and I think that when you look at uh, democracy and the way that uh, democracy functions, uh, you can see that, uh, you know, whatever we might wish for in the future, uh, we don't yet really have a European demos. If you look at the, you know, the newspapers in this country, for example, you know, you will see home news and foreign news, right? You will see that, you know, if you speak to people, uh, you know, it's just a fact of life that we don't follow the uh, uh, news in other European countries the way that we do uh, the news at home. And that's reflected in uh, the uh, way we live, that we have to live with one another, that we have the institutions of taxation and all the rest of it that, that are nationally based. Uh, and I think that, you know, looking at it, in, and, and of course the demos is divided again by language very much uh, across Europe. Uh, I think when you look at, at science, the distinction becomes... Uh, uh, quite clear because when you look at the way in which science operates, um, you know, I, I think that there really are uh, very few or quite residual national distinctions. I mean, I think there is an international language in the case of science, which is English. I mean, there is some non-English language, but predominantly uh, there is an international language. Uh, you know, if you read a scientific journal, you know, it's not divided into home news and international news. Right? It's not the case that 
you know, when a new study comes out and, you know, people are, are, are discussing it, the first thing you, you know, you look at is, well, what, what country did, did these people come from, right? And that is reflected in also the mobility of scientists as people have, you know, discussed, you know, very, uh, uh, very clearly, right? So, uh, you know, so, so there is a tension there, which I think uh, when we um, uh, try to uh, make the case for uh, international cooperation. We have to, to kind of take that as our, our starting point and you know, understand the, the argument that we're having. Um, so I think there's perhaps just a few minutes left or just one or two. So I think that uh, going, going forward with, with Brexit, uh, personally I would make the case for uh, as open borders as uh, 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 as possible, and I think in particular uh, when it comes to uh, both academics more generally and scientists in particular, I think there's a, a kind of very strong case that, that we can make. Uh, and I think that uh, in the case of Britain, we shouldn't see this as uh, in somehow uh, dependent on making a deal with the EU, although that would uh, also be fine, but we shouldn't see it as, as making a concession somehow that we're going to let those people come over here. Uh, we can hope that UK citizens will be able to, to work in the EU, but regardless of, of, of the way that works out, I think that Britain should be very confident in welcoming uh, uh, scientists and others from the EU and, and indeed the rest of the world. So I think that, you know, that, if anything, it's, it's something that, as I say, can be done uh, unilaterally and you know, there is perhaps too much of this being bogged down in uh, uh, deals and, and, and concessions and, and, uh, and all the rest of it. Um, for the rest of it, very final point is uh, that perhaps scientists should be uh, um, uh, a bit self-critical. But maybe I'll, I'll leave some of those points to the, to the discussion. And leave yeah, there. no problem. Can we thank our speakers, please? And I'm, I'm going to give uh, the audience a chance to chip in in just a moment. But first, I'd just like to give you guys the opportunity to respond to one another. Um, Raphael, is there anything you'd like to pick up on, either in uh, the, the arguments that, that Elliot presented for there being certain opportunities and benefits that might arise from Brexit, or in, or in the wider themes of the tension that exists uh, possibly between you know, science and democracy and national culture, on the other hand? I really do not want to give a negative impression in the sense that scientists are not going to go away and stop working. They are not going to stop thinking. They are not going to uh, stop applying for grants. We will continue doing that. It's just we are used to working in a competitive environment, and we will do that. The question is whether the wider society supports us in that endeavor, uh, and the politicians in particular. The, the regulatory environment helps us to do that, or our life becomes more difficult. We are going to do the job regardless. Mm -hmm. But the environment matters very much, and the things that we have access to or not have access to can complicate our lives significantly. I would agree that there are opportunities, but those opportunities can exist within the EU regulatory environment. Nothing stops the UK from establishing specific programs to support, as they do, areas that are considered a priority for the country. 
And it is true that the UK is a leader, and particularly in my research field, is a strong leader in many respects. And we have more advanced in genomics, for instance, and the application of genomics at probably any other country in the world. And it is true that in many areas we lead in the European Union. I was reading in a report of the Genetic Alliance that probably about 30% of the assessments of new medicines are done for the European Medicines Agency by the UK agency on their behalf. That's a tremendous percentage of the total of the assessments that are done. So we have a lot to offer. It's not that the UK will lose. If we are cut off, the whole of the EU will lose because they won't have access to the really significant expertise that there is in the UK. We want to stop working. We will continue collaborating with our European and worldwide counterparts. The question is, in what environment? And I think that the task for the politicians is to try to ensure that they are behind us as much as possible and facilitating the work that we are going to do regardless. We're used to competition. That's, that's the environment we, we live in. In fact, something for us, we train people. So I. I train undergraduate students in my laboratory. I train PhD students, postdocs who have completed a PhD in my lab. Everyone is a mentor eventually, and everyone is a mentee. And, and that's something that I try to instill from the word go. You have to be used, science is really competitive. If you are not prepared to compete, maybe you should look elsewhere for, for a career. Uh, so we want to stop, it's just the question of make our life as easy as possible because otherwise in a way we are shooting the UK's foot or the UK in the foot if we don't do that. Um, I'll find out Elliot if you agree with that um, and get a sense from you I mean if one doesn't know much about science and medicine one's initial thought on leaving the EU is it can't be beyond the wit of man to for scientists to collaborate or, or receive funding across borders you know surely it's happened at other points in time um, but, but perhaps that underestimates the, the challenges we face. And uh, one wonders whether there are sort of uh, the setting of agendas and priorities that goes into the funding one might receive at the international level, IMI or what have you, whether there are new possibilities to set agendas and priorities uh, at a different level. Or again, is that a naive view? Yeah. So, so I think a couple of things. Um, one is, uh, let me just give a little anecdote. About uh, two years ago, uh, I was invited to lunch in London, uh, and I ended up sitting sitting here where I am, not in this theatre, but at lunch. Uh, and on my left-hand side was a guy who may know called Nigel Farage. Um, and Nigel Farage and I, uh, he was drinking a lot of red wine, I was on water, but Nigel Farage and I got to chat a little bit. And what was very, very interesting about his perception, and I'll get to the, the point in a, in a sec, what was very interesting about his perception of um, Brexit was that Brexit wasn't really for us. And when he was talking about us, he meant probably us in this room, and certainly us who are scientists on here. We're really worrying about the movement of everyone else, you know, not you guys type of thing. And, and the difficulty I had with the conversation on a thousand other levels, but in particular was how he was drawing a distinction between uh, our community, the scientific community, and others, and everyone else. Because, of course, there isn't any difference between our community and, and ev everyone else. Um, it's just to do with uh, what we, we choose to focus on uh, for a living, and what we choose to focus on for a living is science and the pursuit of, uh, of medicine. And I think, for me, now, now we've come to this point, was a realization that they just didn't have a clue. 
there was absolutely no concept about the level of integration of uh, the scientific community at a European level, from a funding perspective, from a movement of people perspective, from a regulation perspective. And I actually, th and it, I actually think it's come as a shock to uh, the government uh, here and, frankly, in Europe as to how integrated we are. It is indeed true that 40% actually of all uh, European assessments through the European Medicines Agency are undertaken by the UK regulator. On the 20th of November, we'll find out where the European Medicines Agency uh, is going to, um, and then we'll just not need to figure it out again. But what, from, from a scientific uh, biotech community perspective, we're asking for the transition period to be uh, doubled beyond the two years, which has already been uh, proposed simply because of patient safety. If there's no central organization, how do we monitor adverse effects of drugs you know, advanced therapeutics in patients uh, if there's no functional agency anymore. So these things become uh, really uh, important as we think about where we go. However, um, I think, Sandy, oh. just to, <laughs> I recognize the pen was coming up, so I want to show. Um, however, I, I think um, it is not also beyond the wit of the community to solve for um, some of these uh, issues. We'll continue, I think, to um, lobby for those things in the current environment that we believe will be beneficial to us in the future. But of course, as always, we'd also like to have uh, the cake and eat it. And that's why I talked about some of the proposals that are being made right now for what we believe will be advantages. So are there ways in which we can uh, work with uh, the US regulatory agencies, for example, directly in, in areas like oncology, in which frankly the FDA, the US regulators, are world leading. They're the best by miles and miles and miles. So why would we repeat those sorts of works? Now, right now we can't because we're tied to the European Medicines Agency. If the UK has a sovereign body, then there may be ways of dealing with that. And I also think that we do have lessons to learn from the, uh, from, from your experience of Fiona, where from the non-European national movement, where, um, where we uh, actually relatively easily, I mean, I recognize there are hiccups, uh, but relatively easily create opportunities for people to work who are not from Europe and not from the UK. Uh, and there are lessons we can learn there as we move through Brexit as well. So I think it is tractable. Is it ideal? No. Is it a distraction? Yes. But it is tractable. Fiona, do you want to elaborate um, on, you know, just as w it's a shock to some people, just how integrated uh, things are with, with the European Union? You were saying that it's only in the light of Brexit, really, it's been brought to such public attention that it's a real pain uh, traveling, getting visas, studying here. It's, it's not, not trivial. Uh, so you, so uh, you were saying perhaps if one thing useful has emerged from the current era, it's brought that to light. Mm -hmm. Do you want to elaborate on that at all? Um, yes, I mean, you know, it's, it's clear that this has been a, a problem for a long time. You know, I'd, I'd said something on social media recently about I remember PhD students 10 years ago having this, these sorts of problems. And then other people were chiming in and saying, actually, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, you know, these have been ongoing problems um, that, it, you know, for students from outside Europe, it's just, you know, there are it's hassle after hassle sometimes. So, yes, it's possible. And those students, you know, usually they get through, they don't give up, but it's very disruptive if you have to break your PhD halfway through to, you know, to renew visas and such like. Um, so, you know, I think it's good that this is being highlighted. It's a shame that it's taken this to to highlight it because it sort of suggests that people just accepted that that was part and parcel for 
you know, students from the rest of the world, which it shouldn't be. You know, we, we shouldn't have a, you know, I would like us not to have a different approach to students from outside the EU to students inside the EU. So I think, you know, this it, it's good that these issues are now coming up, that people are starting to realise that this is potentially a big problem. Um, that And, you know, it should be the spur for us to, to pick that up and start putting on the political pressure a bit more. Um, I would say, though, it's, it's not just as simple as freedom of movement. So I was talking to... Um, uh, a Spanish technician in my lab, um, who was saying that, um, you know, he, he, you know, he thinks he should leave. This was a while ago. I don't know if he still feels like this, but he said it's not so much that, you know, the uncertainty about, you know, sort of, you know, right to live and such like, um, but it's more the, you know, he felt there's just so much hostility amongst the British public, you know, against foreigners, so much xenophobia that he felt not welcome anymore. And I think, you know, this, I asked him if, you know, has anything happened to you? Has anyone said anything? And said no. And a few people had similar conversations with nothing, you know, they hadn't personally experienced any xenophobia, but they felt because the media is talking about it so much that it's obviously out there. And I think the media have been quite irresponsible in terms of playing up um, the, the threat, which I, I think is, you know, there's not anything like as much xenophobia as people make out. Um, but it's created a real sort of feeling amongst a lot of people. It's like, well, we're not welcome here. Why would we stay anyway? So that broader political climate uh, and the, you know, the media reporting and such like is also really important. Thanks. And then quickly before I go out to the audience, I mean, Joe, you can respond to what you like, but... Oh, yes. Okay, go on. Step in, Raphael. It's, it's, it's very quick. I think that uh, personal anecdotes can, can bring things home. So I've mentioned that I've been here for 22 years and all I had to do in my time was pack my bags and, and come over. But actually, my wife uh, went to Spain before this for a few years before Spain was a full member of the EU. She had a problem with her job when she first moved and she actually, in order to get herself a visa, had to come back to London, reapply, wait for her visa to come through, and then return to Madrid. That is the scenario that we are potentially walking back to. So it's uh, pe for people who have been born in, in the European Union environment, where you can go anywhere within the EU, literally by packing your bags and going, things can change dramatically, and that is a problem. And just for a sec, I am obviously in touch with some of my former students, both undergrads and postgrads. The UK is being seen no longer as a welcoming country to come and do a degree. It's expensive. Uh, immigration rules are heavy. They have People have to have a significant amount of money up front in a bank account in order to get uh, a visa to come from overseas. And as Joe was saying, other countries are gearing up. They are doing it already. They do university degrees fully in English of high quality in the Netherlands and in Denmark. So why would you come to the UK where it's not as friendly and it's more expensive? And that's the kind of scenario that, again, we are competing against. Okay. Quickly, Joe. So you want to turn that around, it sounds like, from what you were saying. You would like to see the UK you know, open and inviting people and, and setting a new standard. I don't expect you to set out a whole program. Do you have any sense of the criteria on which, uh, on which a policy might say come in or don't come in or you can't come in? Uh, well, I think, well, partly what Elliot was saying that I, I wasn't arguing that I think that scientists are a special case and they should have some special privileged access to the UK. Uh, I do think there's a different culture within science is the point that, that, that I was making. Uh, where, where I think there's a difference. I'm not saying they should have different different kind of rights. Um, as 
you know, as to to what that should be, I think the only way that that's going to be lasting and enduring is that if we kind of win a a, a kind of democratic uh, uh, discussion around that, as I say, I think I would probably make a, a, a case for more open... Although I think, so far as I can uh, tell, there's a majority in the UK for uh, kind of continued very... Uh, open borders with uh, with uh, the EU, it should be said, uh, and I would favour, if anything, even even more uh, uh, openness. Uh, I mean, just a, a comment that I would maybe make as to how that discussion is likely to to play out, and what I think some important arguments are there, which also go to what might be taken as the the kind of uh, uh, public face of uh, of science, perhaps more. Uh, uh, familiar to the to the general public than kind of academics and, and scientists themselves. I think there are some uh, uh, kind of uh, ideas that need to be uh, uh, taken on that are, are kind of very widely accepted amongst scientists themselves that are actually uh, are kind of quite poisonous to the idea of freedom of movement. Uh, so to give a, a, a couple of examples... Quickly, then we'll move out. Quickly. Uh, so uh, the first one would be uh, a sense that the environmental crisis is a thing which is uh, a kind of uh, falling down on us with such a weight that uh, uh, kind of we're running up against limits that, uh, you know, more people, more population is a problem. Uh, flying is certainly seen as a problem. The overall sense of, of moving around, uh, I think, is, uh, you know, problematized by... Uh, 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 in a way which is uh, widely, far too widely uh, accepted amongst scientists, and is seen as uh, kind of the the kind of scientific uh, uh, position on this sort of question. Uh, and I would also uh, point to within universities and academia more more broadly a kind of breakdown of uh, a kind of universal. Uh, idea of knowledge, which is very, very central to science, but is now more and more being replaced by a kind of identity politics, kind of decolonize the curriculum, these sorts of ideas that are, are being taken on in a kind of very uncritical way. Uh, and I think the idea of kind of, you know, stay in your lane that you find the kind of Twitter multiculturalists promote, to me is in some ways has some rather profound similarities to the kind of stay in your country white nationalist uh, politics. So I think those are some things that perhaps scientists should uh, uh, reflect upon if they want to win an argument for openness, for travel, for universalism. Would anyone like to contribute from the floor? Do we have any questions or points? Can we start over here, please, over on this side? Gentleman, second row back. Yeah. Yeah, so I wanted to talk about two things quickly. First of all, how obviously in the UK, both science and medicine is very competitive. And what this does, and I was reading an article in the BBC recently, is it pushes students to study in the EU, study in countries like Hungary, where they find it easier for them to um, get in to med, un med unis, more specifically, and to study there. Do you think this is going to have um, an effect um, post-Brexit on people that choose to study in um, lesser developed countries within Europe or if we could strengthen ties outside of Europe. And also, I was told um, whilst on work experience by a doctor that um, a lot of, uh, of the Asian community um, that were medics decided to vote um, to leave the EU because 
um, they saw it was unfair that a lot of Asian doctors um, or you know, just post um, out of Europe doctors thought, why do people living in, the, in Europe have an easier way of coming and working in England? And so do you think it's going to be easier for those countries outside of Europe um, to come to England and to get the same sort of opportunities now that we are going to eventually leave Europe? Yeah. Thank you. Uh, do we have another? Yes, please. Um, I, I work as a doctor, um, as an oncologist, and I think the access to medicines post-Brexit concerns all of us greatly. It's not just, um, and this was something you were saying, Raphael, it's not just in terms of availability, but also about negotiating effective reductions um, in the cost of medication. We are dependent on paying considerably less than the, than the list price in order um, to make medicines cost-effective. So the panel's thoughts on what we can do post-Brexit to strengthen our position. You talked about FDA and sort of aligning ourselves with that. I'm quite interested to hear. Okay. And is there one more? Oh, two more. Uh, I'll take this one down here, please. Thanks. Just picking up on the reference made to the clinical trials directive, it's one of the few things I hear concrete terms that, gee, we can get rid of the EU shackles. That's the ex one of the examples given. Um, I wonder if you could elaborate on that, and I just wonder whether in such a regulated industry that I think needs to be regulated, whether it's more, is it an example of over-bureaucracy or is it an example of collaborative regulation that takes into account others? I don't know which way it goes. Okay, and finally, was there a point over here? Yes, and then I'll come out again afterwards, but if I could take you. <coughs> Yeah, I just wanted to broaden out the debate from there's been quite a focus on Brexit and to say all of the threats that we're talking about and the opportunities that have been mentioned are equally valid if we talk more globally. I'm a South African doctor. I've worked in South Africa, Canada, the UK. I currently work on global health programs in South America and African countries. And I'm very interested in, in this question as it relates to global health. And based on what um, the panel has said, I think as a doctor within medicine, there's an internal congruence and an internal desire and a vision that we all share to improve healthcare globally. And so I believe that mission holds true. But um, in terms of the threat from the borders, of course, the context is very different in every country. And so we face threats in each country, in each environment. But it's just to broaden out the debate to a global one rather than purely being Brexit focused. That's very useful, thank you. Um, I'll, I'll let the panel come back and then go out again. Um, you can each pick on uh, what you find most interesting. Um, the, the thing, I suppose, about the global perspective is, you know, is, is there anything new under the sun? Do Have borders always posed, uh, or, or the way that they're governed, posed a threat to science? Or is there something specific about the present era? Or, is, or is, are they in tension uh, in some way, perhaps similar to what Joe has discussed? Um, questions about, the, well, the clinical trials uh, directive. I've heard the case made both ways with that, that it's a restrictive thing and a, and a permissive, uh, useful thing that we'll lose out from. Um, and the idea, you know, whether, whether Brexit could make it easier for non-EU people, uh, Asian medics or, or others, uh, to come in. Would anyone like to kick us off? Okay, um, I'm not going to cover all of those, although if we had an hour, it would be quite interesting to. Um, let me do a couple of them. 
So, so I think uh, first and foremost, uh, how do we deal with the fact that the UK market for medicines is, a, is between two and three percent of the global market, and and where's the um, pricing leverage? Um, so, so again, I think thought leadership here is really, really important. So. Um, the much-ridiculed uh, National Institute for Clinical Health and Excellence, the so-called NICE organization, was actually one of the uh, first on the planet to introduce uh, cost-effective measures for new medicines. Um, and, and out of the back of that um, have, of course, become uh, price controls, some of which have impacted on the amount uh, of these new medicines that get used here. But what's been really important is it's caused the whole industry to think about uh, patient benefit and what how does patient benefit correlate with cost and correlate with outcome um, and so I think that you know the UK has an opportunity um, even in splendid isolation to continue with uh, thought leadership um, and uh, think about ways in which a uh, single uh, provider um, although it's a fractionated uh, organization that in the NHS uh, of medicines can work uh, with uh, academia uh, with the industry uh, to find uh, new ways of, of delivering uh, medicines uh, and, and in particular innovative medicines uh, that are needed. That uh, includes uh, the, uh, the price controls that have been discussed but also uh, wrapped into that are other ways uh, of accessing medicines and that comes to the clinical trials directive um, and, and one of the things that you know I would strongly advocate for is that part of a patient's uh, pathway uh, is to be included in the clinical trial. And if we get back to a position where we're doing more and more, not fewer and fewer clinical trials, which is actually what's happening to the UK right now, then there is more and more opportunity uh, for patients to be included in clinical trials as part of their pathway. It's particularly pertinent in oncology uh, and, and other um, uh, life-threatening diseases, but it's also true of, of more chronic uh, diseases as well. The, the clinical trials directive, um, I would say this, wouldn't I, because I'm from the industry, we felt was very restricting. Um, it added a whole two new layers uh, of paperwork, bureaucracy, uh, to the process over and above a system which had been uh, pretty effective, the so-called doctors and dentists exemption. So any of you who was born in the 1960s uh, or before that will remember that. Anyone afterwards probably hasn't come across it. But there are opportunities for us to lead, therefore get uh, new medicines to patients uh, more quickly. I mean, the clinical trials directive was, you know, after Brexit, in the immediate aftermath last year, when, as people have said on the panel, most commentary from uh, UK sort of academics and scientists was one of consternation. Um, an, an exception to that, uh, Professor John Bell, uh, writing in, in the Financial Times, um, with whom Elliot's just worked on the on the life sciences uh, industrial strategy, uh, he alighted on the clinical trials directive, and his take on it was. Um, you know, the EU has a record of deep regulatory conservatism, attempting to legislate and control many aspects of science that are not deemed here in the UK to present a significant danger. And he went on to discuss clinical trials. Raphael, your work involved clinical trials, does it? Not so far, but that of many of my colleagues uh, does. Uh, certainly there is a significant concern within the Genetic Alliance. So I'm a trustee of the Genetic Alliance, and, and this organization is an umbrella organization for about 200 uh, patient organizations, and those patients are affected by various rare diseases. And one of the major concerns in the Genetic Alliance in the context of Brexit is access to European clinical trials. It is possible that UK-based patients may not have access, UK-based clinicians may not have access, and like, likewise, 
people in, in the EU may not have access to UK-based clinical expertise or, or clinical trials. And that is a very significant concern that really needs dealing with. Um, if, if I can pick up in terms of access to medicines, that is a critical issue right now across the community for these gene and cell therapies, which are being marketed now for very significant prices uh, in the ballpark of half a million to a million pounds per treatment. Uh, is not sustainable, really. So the industry uh, is looking for alternative ways uh, for reimbursement, effectively for the system to pay for those. Uh, and there is, I would say, active research uh, and people are trying to come up with alternative ways that do not involve very significant upfront payments uh, for treatments that potentially can be curative. So that's not, not, that's not really related with Brexit. It's simply that this, most of these therapies are very expensive to both develop, manufacture and implement. And, and we have to exercise imagination if we are going to do it in a cost-effective manner. Um, but that's not necessarily related to Brexit. Brexit certainly does not make it any easier. Uh, regarding the, the global issues, uh, I just wanted to see whether we could have a little more, if, with your expertise, is there something specific regarding global access to health and medicine that you would like us to discuss? Can we get a microphone <laughs> over? Sorry. The issue is so wide, I won't be able to ask, but it's just to contextualise it in that way, to say this is a bigger picture than just Brexit. Uh, go on, Fiona. Yeah, I was just, I'm going to agree, absolutely agree with that. The research I'm, I'm currently involved in is, um, is in Lebanon. So we are working with um, Syrian refugee children and their, their families. We're uh, doing a big cohort study, but also a, a clinical trial of a psychological intervention. And it's, I think it's so important for us to be doing that research out there for various reasons. Um, the, I mean, it would be much technically much easier for us to look at refugees who have you know, got to Europe. Um, but that's a very different population. You know, it's, uh, the pop it's you know, generally speaking, people who are more highly educated, have more resources behind them. The group of refugees who are in Lebanon and the other countries surrounding Syria are those who are, you know, a significant proportion haven't attended school, um, who don't have much money. It's the people who really could just walk across the border and then sort of stop somewhere. So there, there are really different issues. And, and what happens a lot of the time in psychology and psychiatry research is that we do that research in Western populations and then we just assume that, that you know, the, the, the frameworks that we're using, the concepts are just sort of the same and you can just sort of transplant them anywhere in the world. And, you know, clearly in mental health, that's not the case. You know, there are vast gulfs and, you know, different, you know, cultural understandings of mental health, for example. So it's really important that we do that. And it is, it's more challenging, you know, the borders issues and, and just, you know, trying to do things in the Middle East is a lot more challenging than it would be here. Um, but, we, you know, we can do that. It makes things a, a bit more expensive. It takes longer. It's a bit more complicated sometimes, but we, we absolutely should be, be doing that. And, and other thing to think about when we do that is that we um, it was quite hard to get um, permission to, to do the research say, in the first place and that was partly because the Lebanese government were quite concerned I think that we were just you know maybe you know like some other experiences it had that Western researchers would come in you know sort of take advantage of a vulnerable population and then just take all the data and you know there'd be no net benefit to the population there 
Um, so they wanted us to ensure that we could provide services, that we, you know, try and, um, you know, build the local research capacity. You know, there was no labs in Lebanon that could do some of the analysis that we wanted to do, but we found a lab that, you know, we're willing to try, you know, to help sort of, you know, did a pilot study with them to sort of build up that capacity. Um, and also thinking about what, how our research could actually contribute to what they're doing. So we've designed some of our measures with a view to collecting data that's actually useful for the Ministry of Public Health in Lebanon and for the UNHCR and other people working with refugees and we'll then make those measures available to them free of charge once we've developed them. So yeah, it's really important and I would like us to see you know see us lift our eyes beyond Europe um, and just think can, can we build those collaborations, collaborations with low and middle income countries as well because it gets forgotten about. Um, okay. Can I... Yes, please. And also coming back to your question regarding education, so obviously the, the recognition of degrees across countries is not an automatic thing. Within the EU it is. Uh, so with the UK outside of the EU, that's one more thing to deal with. What's going to have or to happen with people who have been awarded degrees in other countries? unless there is a specific scheme. So that is very important. In terms of global issues, I, I wanted to say that science is actually incredibly open in terms of the, the origin of people who work in science. Uh, I can quote people in my lab who are from, from, from Iran, from Iraq, uh, from all over Europe, uh, from South America. But obviously, the... <laughs> The difficulties that those people face to come over or actually to go somewhere uh, when they are over here are very different. If you are within the EU, it's all smooth. If you are coming from South America or from the Middle East, the barriers are tremendous. I can give a specific example. I had a, an Egyptian PhD student based in my lab. We set up a collaboration with colleagues in Spain and we were sending over some reagents and this guy wanted to go over and do the experiment with them. We just could not get a visa in time for this guy to go to Spain and we were talking about months in advance of actually doing the experiment. While for a European uh, passport holder, that would have been buy your ticket and go over. So it is obviously very different and it would be Science is very open for people who are determined and strong-minded and regardless of the bureaucratic difficulties, they, they want to work in science and they'll eventually get there. But for people from outside of the EU, it's much more complicated and we are all for easing those difficulties, absolutely. I'll let you come in, Joe, and also if you have any thoughts on you know, how timeless these questions are that we're talking about or how much they've been brought into a particular focus by Brexit and other recent developments? Um, well, I mean, just on the points uh, people in Matt as Rafael has given, I mean, there are, you know, endless anecdotes I'm sure we can all give about the uh, difficulties. I mean, even for a, a, you know, for me going to work in the US, which is relatively easier than people coming from Iran and other places we know, Compared to moving into Europe, to you know, to move from the UK to the US to work is a lot of bureaucracy and difficulties and delays and and all the rest of it. And it would not be good if we had even the similar relationship between UK and Europe. I think it would cause a a, a lot of a, a, of delays and problems. Um, on the flip side, looking at the the global picture, um, you know, and the and, and the EU and looking beyond Europe. Uh, we could perhaps also uh, uh, remember that the EU as an institution is not 
only associated with free movement within its borders, uh, but you look at the policing of the border in the Mediterranean and the other side of the EU is, of course, a rather uh, 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 strict and, in many cases, kind of brutal and, and deadly policing of that border, which may also be uh, 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 something to reflect on. Um, and just, uh, I suppose, another reflection on the points that have been made in, in the discussion of the clinical trials and the various other discussions, I think it may be useful to um, uh, uh, make a distinction between uh, those decisions which uh, certainly need to be made, and there is a danger that they will not be made through drift or disorganization or lack of leadership, but are relatively uncontentious. And I might hope that something like the Clinical Trials Directive needs to fall into that category um, as against uh, decisions which are perhaps much more uh, politically contested around free movement, uh, where uh, maybe scientists need to engage not just in a technical discussion and discussions within the profession. And I mean, that needs to happen and all these arrangements need to be made. Uh, but on some of these discussions, I think there is also a need for a, a wider kind of public engagement with the issues. On which theme would anyone else like to contribute from the floor? This is very rare at the Battle of Ideas. Speak now or forever hold your peace. I've got things I want to ask these people. Um, I mean, one thing on my mind, no, is who should fund science anyway? Um, you know, what, what is the, should, uh, should science be funded ultimately by uh, governments, by supranational institutions? The IMI is a matched funding arrangement between industry uh, and the EU, um, the open market, the free market. What, do, we, do we have a view on, who, on whom it, it, it is incumbent to fund scientific research? I would argue that everyone who has an interest should fund science and I in my rare disease space and I just want to define this rare disease so for those of you who are not familiar with so there is a European definition of what a rare disease is is one that affects fewer than one in 2,000 people uh, for the most common rare diseases like cystic fibrosis or sickle everyone will have heard of uh, for most others no one will have in, of, often not even uh, medics because they are so rare that they just never come across in the course of their uh, clinical life. And um, in my experience, the rare diseases in which there are treatments either already marketed or very close to marketing, the research has been funded by the patient associations. So those patient associations like for spinal muscular atrophy or for uh, Duchenne muscular dystrophy that have relatively big population or patient bases and have got their act together, they have actually funded the seminal research that is eventually leading to treatments. So that's a very clear case in which the patient, clear stakeholders in the field, have driven the research, have funded it, and have pursued it all the way to marketing and treatment. Um, in other cases, that maybe that the patient population is so small that they would never be able to fundraise enough, 
But actually, what we are learning from working on rare diseases is becoming applicable to common diseases in two different ways, because the technology that has been developed can be applied to common diseases or because we learn about fund fundamental principles of physiology that are of importance to common diseases. So actually, there is an argument that you should find what we call blue skies research, in which scientists come up with perhaps crazy ideas, which in principle have no practical application, but eventually maybe seminal applications are found uh, for those crazy ideas to start with. So really, I would argue that is the responsibility of everyone who has an interest in science to actually promote that science. And something that is coming up these days is crowdfunding of science. Yeah, it's happening. I'll throw in that one of uh, John Bell's um, other criticisms of the EU when he responded to the Brexit vote last year, he said that constraints on state aid inhibit the UK's ability to support the science-based industries more directly uh, as the Americans do. Is that fair? Yeah, no, it is. I mean, there are very strict rules with respect to uh, how much um, uh, any government in, the Europe, in Europe, with the exception of those who choose to ignore the rules, which seems to be everyone other than the UK, um, are able to provide, and, and it's the state aid rules. Um, it impinges on uh, grant giving. It, it impinges upon capital support. And again, one of the intentions, I think, of, of the work that uh, that John led within the life science industrial strategy is to anticipate what a unencumbered uh, investment uh, opportunity might be um, through state support for uh, the sector, and, and that's everything from. Uh, you know, the reformation of institutes uh, all the way through to providing um, uh, capital support for, for startups and, and so on and so forth, so right across the board. Let me just come back to a couple of things, of if I might. Sorry, Sandy. So I'm just going to pick up on this globalization piece because I think, um, you know, Raphael uh, speaks to this in, in a way of demonstrating that if you think about one disease set, um, which may be rare, it can lead to opportunities in, in uh, greater disease sets. But it's equally true um, where diseases don't have borders. Um, so we recently, uh, so Municor recently uh, did a deal with uh, Bill and Melinda Gates to look at HIV and TB. Now there's really no point in tackling HIV and TB just in Western Europe or the US. You to make a difference at a global level, you've got to tackle it globally. Um, and, and for HIV, clearly Sub-Saharan Africa becomes a very important place to work. But all of the economic principles, all of the infrastructure, all the way in which you do research is completely different to the way in which we work here. And the Gates Foundation have figured that out. It's equally true that for TB, you, you can't be in the West. I mean, TB, largely in the West, other than a few pockets, doesn't really exist uh, endemically. Whereas there are places like uh, Vietnam, where it's everywhere. And it's one of the world's largest research centers is, is, in, is in Vietnam. So you've got to think globally. If you think globally, then you can solve for these things. And that's what the Gates Foundation do, for example. And, and I've, been, I, I've marveled, frankly, at the sophistication of their global thinking um, when they've come to take Western technology, which is what we have, uh, and deploy and aim, we collectively then for aim to deploy it on a global basis. So that is then without borders. And the thinking's without borders, and frankly, everything else, all of the borders just become things to solve for. And they become problems that are addressable. And, the, and Bill and Melinda Gates are likely, within the next couple of years, to have wiped out polio as endemic because they think uh, globally. And I think our community is one of the few that has um, a, the necessity to think on that basis, but also the ability to think on that basis because scientific endeavor, scientific thinking 
actually doesn't have a border. And, and, and if I might... Quickly. One more. I, I also think that sometimes the, the Brexit conversation can go down a kind of doom and gloom um, spiral. And, I, and, I, and actually, I think there's a kind of perverse positive consequences come up uh, for our community because of Brexit. Literally, I don't think two years ago anyone had a clue in uh, central government what was going on with our community. There are very, very few docs. Uh, there are very few scientists anywhere in, in Parliament. And you guys need to do something about that, by the way. Go out and stand for politics and join up and get it started. But um, there are very, very few. Perversely, what's happened is they've had to learn about it because we've been banging down the door. And they now know m much more about advanced manufacturing, about the fact that uh, science translates across borders, about the fact that you know, a third of most scientists in the UK are Europeans and qualified in Europe in a way that they didn't know. Now, what we've got to do is continue to beat the drum to make sure that um, anything that is a consequence of Brexit addresses that. But I think we're in a much better position because of Brexit, perversely, than if Brexit hadn't happened. I'm conscious that many of us on this panel work in uh, health or life sciences. <laughs> uh, and I know it's all converging big data and, and so on. But I'm curious, is there anyone in the audience who works in or studies uh, a scientific field that isn't life sciences or health or medicine? Or have we ended up with a, an audience that sort of mirrors our panel in that sense? Oh, go on. Uh, uh, do you have any... What's your take on who should fund... And would you like to, exp what do you do? I'm a biological person. <laughs> so, yeah, so any case could you pass the microphone? I'm a bioethicist, so any take on questions about Brexit or who funds research obviously will take an ethical stance from me. So, for example, the motives behind such research and things like that, and the impact that other institutions would have on such research other than the state. So I think normally we're quite critical of kind of um, private companies um, funding research, especially when it comes to genomic medicine, even things to do with like genetic um, CRISPR, kind of things like that. People have certain ideas surrounding that from a bioethical point of view. So rather than a political point of view, that's what okay. I would have. I'm going to let two people speak from the audience. This is a very strange panel because by being shy, you've turned this session inside out. You've, you might even end up getting the last word if you're not careful. But yes, let's hear from you. Hi. So I'm, I'm not a scientist. I work, um, I'm a grants fundraiser for third sector charities. So it's actually in some ways quite analogous, but obviously the nature of the work is different focus. Um, but we found over the last few years the amount of local and uh, national state funding is totally decreased. There is nearly no funding available for any kind of small charities um, around. And as a result, the sort of focus for seeking grants and funding has totally shifted to independent grant-making trusts and basically being really, really inventive with how to get money. Um, so whether that's through private donors or through coming up with initiatives that allow you to sustain yourself, like opening a commercial wing or something like that. So it sounds like the science sector may have to adapt in similar ways and so far as pure scientific research independently organizations that focus on that will have to start doing other things too okay can i just take uh, this contribution here down here that's right yep um 
I have a problem with the discussion, and I just can't pinpoint exactly my problem, but I just think that the argument hasn't been made. And yes, I mean, as a scientist, it was nice to go to a different country in the world and meet different people and um, and develop science. But then against the arguments about science and uh, the op open borders, you could make it on any knowledge. Mm -hmm. I mean, humanity, it's very nice to be able to discuss a with the Chinese, you, you know, studying humanities and, you know, I don't know, any, any subject. So I just, I just, and so my problem is that um, the question was, can science uh, be threatened or medicine be threatened by borders? I don't think it was threatened by borders when in the past, and the EU is quite a relatively um, uh, recent uh, institutions. Science wasn't necessarily threatened by borders. For me, I'm for free movement, so I think it's kind of nice for people to be able to and go and meet around people and you know see the world and discuss. But I just don't, I, I just don't think that we answer the questions of what's so specific about science and why is it that you think that it's threatened. I mean. You can do science, for example, by talking to people without moving. So, I mean, I just, there is something about this discussion that, um, anyway, so. No, that's absolutely fine. Don't do this to me. You're all putting your hands up when we are literally at the end of the discussion. One sentence, you. One sentence, you. And then the same with the panel. Go. I think it's not so much that science and medicine is threatened, because I think, as you said, the thinking is shared, the vision is shared, the passion is shared. But the borders are an impedance to what we want to do, not right. a threat. Okay, you, quickly. Um, if we look at, for example, the Middle East, where borders are always shifting and how borders um, are hard to define, surely we need to think of solutions on how we can collaborate between those sort of countries. You know, Palestine, Israel, for example, we, there's smart minds that are there as well and how it can help develop um, the scientific world as well as the, med the medicinal world. Right. Raphael, quickly. I'm going to wind up in a minute. Yeah, I, I entirely agree with the fact that what we are discussing is not, strictly speaking, relevant to science only. And in fact, I feel terribly selfish if, with people making the claim that scientists should have freedom of movement. I think that the benefits that we can perceive in freedom of movement for science would equally uh, apply to pretty much everything else, as you would argue. You can do research on anything else, uh, and, and you can work on engineering, on, on creative arts, and the benefits of... of you know, free movement would apply to everyone. So I, I feel very uncomfortable when science lobbies uh, will lobby for uh, the permeability of borders exclusively for science. I think that is it really applies to everything. There, are, there will be benefits for free movement applied to every field that you can think of. Fiona, do you agree? Um, I actually just want to come back on the, the point about um, medical education, which I didn't come back on before. Um, I sort of want to disentangle the idea of the sort of mutual recognition of standards from borders, because that I, I think they should be disentangled, actually. I don't think it should be the case that, you know, if you're in the EU, then you automatically recognise other qualifications if you don't have any, you know, sort of, you know, if you haven't actually gone and sort of looked at the, the, the education programmes and how comparable they are, because you have no idea then about standards. Um, it is the case that, you know, the Royal College of veterinary surgeons is currently working with India so if they can get that mutual recognition of standards what that means is that if a vet comes from India to the UK then they will be able to to work here without having to sit further exams and um, but that's different from the issue of visas and such like um, so that you know the, the the political borders are a sort of different issue um, from from those aspects of mutual accreditation I think we could should keep them separate but yeah it, you know definitely this we, we should be looking out you know beyond Europe uh, looking to other other 
other parts of the world and trying to get much, I mean, much, much greater, um, you know, sort of wider schemes that uh, try to harmonise standards. Thank you. Um, Joe, the final word. Uh, so what's special about science? I agree that scientists shouldn't have special rights to move. I think the culture of science today is probably uh, uniquely open. I mean, you can look at history before the Second World War. Germany was the center, well, of scientific culture for sure and much other culture. Uh, after the experience of the 30s and the Second World War, that really moved to the US and you could see that the US was pretty much the center of, of world science. Uh, I think if you look at how that has developed today, science is now much more worldwide. Uh, that's a kind of a one-sentence sketch of, of, of the development, I guess, over the last 100 years. Uh, and, of course, people can look at it in, in much more detail. But I think that, that when you just look at the way the scientific community operates and what it is, it has become a global community. Uh, and uh, probably more global than many other communities that, that, uh, that exist. So I think in that sense, it's a kind of more uh, uh, a kind of uh, open global community. And uh, that's something, something very valuable that I think we should uh, 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 promote. Hopefully we can learn from others and others will learn from the openness of scientists too. Thank you very much. And can we thank our speakers?